Do you ever just want to have an excuse not to go out and you can't tell your friends no? Well, here is your excuse, In For The Night. It is a comedy podcast that has everything you need. They discuss and suggest movies that they would like to see and give their ratings. Then do a deep dive into different topics ranging from true crime, the paranormal, and let's face it, shenanigans. It's fun to listen to and laugh at as you relax at home, in your car, when you're working out. The episodes upload weekly so you can get your fix. Uploaded on all major listening platforms. Let them give you a reason to stay in for the night. So check it out, In For The Night Podcast. A link will be provided in this episode's description. Episode 100 of Strange Places. Look at that. We made it. Episode 100. That is a milestone for sure. So, uh, man, I want to thank all of you for making this podcast what it is. All the patrons. My goodness. We made it, guys. That's crazy. Slow clap. Yeah, we need a little golf clap going here. You know, when I first started this thing, Strange Places was, uh, a, a, it was an experiment. You know, it was just a total experiment. I had my podcast already, No Disclosure, which is a weird news podcast. If you haven't heard it, check it out. It's nothing like this. No Disclosure is just pure fucking insanity. <laughs> if you want to hear, you know, like me actually being funny, then uh, yeah, check out No Disclosure. But I had that. Things were going, you know, this, uh, that was getting pretty successful. I was doing good there. But I've always been fascinated by this kind of stuff. And I just threw this out there as kind of an experiment. Little did I know that Strange Places was going to completely eclipse what No Disclosure was doing. I mean, Strange Places outdoes No Disclosure threefold every month in terms of its listeners, its downloads, its uh, retention. I mean, it's just, just it's amazing. You guys are fascinated by this stuff, as am I. And I felt like we've you know, we've developed a little bit of a community here. I've gotten to know a couple of you. I've gotten to talk to a few of you. You guys are awesome. <laughs> I feel like we're just part of the Cool Kids Club. And to make it to episode 100, I'm really happy to still be here and making content for you. And I'm happy you're still here. This is awesome. <laughs> now, if my voice sounds a little husky, I'm getting over one of the worst flus I've ever had in my life. Second only to when I got COVID, like at the start of the pandemic. I mean, this was a nasty one, and I'm still getting over it. Oh, it's just awful. I thought it was COVID to the point where I had to take a home test. I just took it like not 20 minutes ago, and thank God it ended up being negative. I mean, this is a nasty flu. I'm sitting here covered in sweat. Just, <laughs> It's terrible. And I'm um, just getting to the point where I can actually speak. No disclosure, my other podcasts, After Hours, those are completely out of the question. Strange places I can do because, you know, I keep my voice all Bob Ross for you. You know, that's I mean, <laughs> the normal tone of voice. But even still, this is a bit of a struggle. So, uh, yeah, my voice sounds a little funky, maybe even a little bit sexier. That's what the problem is. <laughs> I'm going, getting over a nasty flu. So before I get into it... Um, 
thank you guys so much for sticking with me for 100 episodes and uh here's to 100 more so yeah one of the big ones right the green children of Woolpit. in the annals of history there is this tale that's persisted for centuries a story that straddles the realms of reality and the inexplicable the one right one of the big ones the green children of Woolpit. Emerging from the depths of the 12th century, this one still continues to captivate scholars, enthusiasts, skeptics. Everybody knows about this one. This one's crazy. And this exploration, you know, I want to see if we can walk through the intricate web, maybe find some stuff we didn't know before, delving into this thing. I really want to tackle the Green Children of Woolpit. This is a very, very strange story and one that I've been intrigued by for a long time. You want to travel to Suffolk, England, small village of Woolpit. A peculiar event unfolded during the reign of King Stephen. This is all the way back in the 12th century. The villagers going about their daily lives, they stumbled upon two children, an unassuming brother and sister, yet... It was their appearance that defied convention. Their skin bore an unearthly shade of green. This unexpected phenomenon set the stage for a tale that would bewilder, inspire, and divide opinions all the way until now, probably forever. The children, unable to communicate in the language spoken by the villagers, appeared to be from another world, another planet. Their diet consisting solely of raw, broad beans, further heightened the mystique surrounding their origin. That's all they would eat. Over time, they adapted to their new surroundings, embracing different foods, and eventually they lost that green tint that initially marked them as outsiders. So their skin eventually returned to a a normal color tragedy did strike as the boy succumbed to illness after being baptized, leaving the girl to navigate her new life alone. As the girl learned English and assimilated into her new environment, she shared a tale that was beyond astonishing. She claimed that they hailed from a land known as St. Martin's Land, a realm where sunlight never graced the earth, cloaking everything in perpetual twilight. The specifics of this distant world remained elusive. Some accounts painted it as a land draped in varying shades of green, while others simply referred to it as St. Martin's Land. The girl's story, both haunting and captivating, sowed the seeds of fascination and skepticism in equal measure. The Chronicles of William of Newburgh and Ralph of Coggeshall have preserved the account of the green children of Woolpit through the ages. These chroniclers, separated by geography and time, they offer unique perspectives on this mystery. William, drawing on reports from trustworthy sources, as he states, trustworthy sources, those are his words, documented the story with a mix of wonder and cautious belief. Ralph, writing years later, wove the tale into his own narrative, adding depth and complexity that really didn't need to be there, kind of muddying the waters quite a bit. 
Between their accounts and the rediscovery of the tale in the 19th century, sporadic references to the Green Children appeared, casting a fleeting presence in the works of authors Robert Burton, Francis Godwin. I mean, a lot of writers have tackled this. I myself have. (laughs) These references ignited the imagination of those who encountered them. They laid the groundwork for the narratives, narratives and enduring legacy. For believers, the tale of the green children offers a glimpse into a world just beyond comprehension. They find solace in the idea that the boundaries of reality are more porous than they appear, that there are hidden truths waiting to be uncovered. To them, the girl's account holds the key to a parallel existence, right? Something that scientists have been arguing about forever. A place of perpetual twilight, green-hued landscape, another dimension. Believers find beauty in the unknown, embracing the possibility of encounters with beings from other dimensions or even extraterrestrial origin. Believers often point to the historical context of the Middle Ages, This is a time when the boundaries between the mundane and the mystical were kind of blurry. They argue that the villagers' unfamiliarity with the children's language and customs, as well as the girls' tales of another world, could be indicative of a genuine encounter with something extraordinary. You know, you can look at it the other way, too. This was a deeply... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Superstitious time. To the point where... You had to be really careful about what you talked about on that street, boy. That kind of superstitious. I mean, and what skeptics are saying, I mean, skeptics, they approach the green children tale with a critical eye, as you should. It's good to look at both ends, right? They question the narrative's authenticity, viewing it as a folklore-infused creation of a garbled retelling of a real event. Skeptics point out that the story only surfaces sporadically in historical records, casting doubt on its veracity. That's what they're saying. Um, now, <laughs> what I'm telling you about what believers say and what skeptics say, I'll let you know of my opinions once we get a little bit later, if you want to know what I think. I'm just giving it to you, you know, what, from every angle. One argument put, uh, put forth by the skeptics is the possibility of the children suffering from a rare medical condition known as hypochronic anemia which could give their skin a greenish tint. This medical explanation offers a rational interpretation for the children's unique appearance, devoid of the need for otherworldly origins. Skeptics also note the discrepancy between the accounts of William and Ralph, highlighting major inconsistencies that could stem from either imaginative embellishments or, you know, factual inaccuracy. What I say, I mean, in the context of the 12th century, The village of Woolpit was nestled in a very densely populated region of rural England. It belonged to the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds, you know, lending to an era of religiosity and mystique. The chronicles of William and Ralph, originating from different uh, monastic backgrounds, it adds a lot of layers of complexity to this. Ralph was an abbot of uh, Cogshall Abbey, and William, he he was a canon. (laughs) <laughs> of the Newburgh Priory. These were both situated in disparate parts of the country. This geographical divide fuels speculation, you know, about the authenticity of these accounts, raising questions about sources and influences. But these were very highly respected people. Two main explanations. 
have emerged to demystify this. The first view treats it as uh, the first view treats it as a f- folktale, a product of imaginative encounters with inhabitants from another world, another dimension. This interpretation resonates with those who perceive the children as beings from a subterranean or even extraterrestrial realm. They find a lure in the idea that the children offered a glimpse into reality beyond human understanding. The second perspective points, you know, the, the narrative is a garbled representation of an actual event. This viewpoint gains traction among those who believe that the story holds a kernel of reality obscured by time and interpretation. While the details may have become distorted over the centuries, I mean, skeptics suggest that the tale might have originated from a genuine encounter, one who thought, whose authenticity has been obscured by just the simple passage of time. So that's the gist of it. Let's really start looking into this case file here. They were found to be brother and sister, generally normal appearance, except for the green color of their skin, right? Unknown language, and they only ate raw beans. They learned to eat other food. They lost the green color. The boy was sickly and did die. Now, the girl was considered to be very wanton and impudent. After she learned to speak English, she explained that she and her brother came from a land where the sun never shone. Constant twilight, St. Martin's land. The only near contemporary accounts, William of Newburgh and Ralph of Coggeshall. Two approaches have dominated explanations of the story in the Green Children, that it's a folktale describing an imaginary encounter with the inhabitants of another world, maybe subterranean or extraterrestrial, right? Or it could be a real event. We, there's, a lot of people are just saying we just don't know. The two sources... This is... <laughs> these are two writers, Ralph of Coggeshall, William of Newburgh, They both reported on the sudden and unexplained arrival of the village of two green children during one summer in the 12th century. They even gave the location 26 miles south of Woolpit. Both of them said the same exact thing. William was a canon, as I said, at the Newburgh Priory, far to the north in Yorkshire. He reports that a number of trustworthy sources, he doesn't name the sources, Ralph says the same thing. He drew on the account of Sir Richard de Collin of Wykes, who supposedly sheltered the children in his manor house six miles north of Woolpit. At least Ralph gave one reference, right? While it was common for medieval chroniclers to copy each other's passages verbatim, often with little or no attribution. That was a thing back then. Well, it's still a thing now, really, when you think about it. <laughs> the accounts given by the two authors differ in some details, to say the least. The, um, the accounts given by the... Uh, okay, well, let me say it this way. While Ralph was based approximately 40 kilometers from Woolpit, William recorded it virtually from the other side of fucking England, making it even more unlikely that the former would have had any reason to copy from the latter. That makes sense, doesn't it? Furthermore, Ralph names his sources. Well, William states he heard the tale from unknown persons. It seems that William's his tale is looking rather weak. So, I mean, if common sense tells you we got Ralph to lean on, really. At least Ralph named a, you know, <laughs> at least Ralph had a source. Sir Richard de Collin of Wykes. 
who supposedly housed the children in his manor for a time. Ralph was very close geographically. But here's the thing. He was writing decades after William. Although William was writing relatively soon after the... De- uh, he was, you know, the, the one that wrote the closest to the events depicted. His writing is hemmed around with doubt. It seems to be embellished. It's very folklore You know what I mean? fairy tale Looking at the girl more. Uh, this is from the account of William. Ralph mentioned this a little bit. But William says that she, the girl eventually married a man from Kingsland, about 40 miles from Woolpit, where she was still living shortly before he wrote. Based on his research into Richard uh, Richard de Collins, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, family history, the astronomer and writer Duncan Lunan has concluded that the girl was given the name Agnes and that she married a royal officer named Richard Barr. Richard Barr is kind of famous in his own right. He was a medieval English justice, clergyman, scholar. He was educated at the law school of Bologna. Yeah, he, uh, he you know, royal service under King Henry II. He was, he was a big deal. He was in service to King Henry. So, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, if you were to name drop somebody for a story, don't you think you would name drop somebody a little bit less famous <laughs> you know, at the time? And this is mentioned in the personal writings of Richard Barr as well. Very, very small little snippet in his personal writings. He does mention a wife named Agnes and that they had a child. But it kind of stops there. Gets very, very difficult to research outside of that. The girl was given the name Agnes. She apparently married this guy. But I can't find anything outside of that. We're seeing name drops of people that actually existed. Which is good for research. But finding out about these real children is very difficult. You would think that Agnes, after she grew up and got older, would have written about her brother or would have you know, said something. I know Richard Barr was very respected, but... He, I, in his personal journals, he thought he would have mentioned more than that. But at the same time, if he was married and had a kid, you would have thought about he would have written about more about them, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Other than just in passing, oh, by the way, I have a wife and a kid. But, you know, these were just um, kind of offhand, just personal, like, diary entries. Really short. These might be the children of Flemish immigrants who arrived in eastern England during the early 12th century and were later persecuted after Henry II became king in 1154. A lot of people proposed that the children's homeland of St. Martin's Land was the village of Fornham St. Martin, just north of Bury St. Edmunds, and suggest that their parents were Flemish cloth workers settled there. Furthermore, now I'm going to get somewhere here, listen to this. In 1173, Fornham was the site of the Battle of Fornham, during the civil war between King Henry II and his son, the young King Henry, rebel forces led by Robert de, Boom, Robert de Beaumont, sorry, 3rd Earl of Lancaster, uh, together with a large number of Flemish mercenaries, they landed in Suffolk, but they were defeated by royal forces on the banks of the River Lark. 
Are you with me? The Flemish mercenaries were slaughtered. And a lot of people suggest there might have been violence against peaceful Flemish settlers in the area. The children probably fled and ultimately wandered in the wool pit, disoriented, bewildered, speaking zero English, and dressed in unfamiliar Flemish clothes. The children would have been presented a very strange spectacle <laughs> to the wool pit villagers. A lot of historians believe that the children's color could be you know, explained by anemia. Chlorosis, green sickness. It's a result of a dietary deficiency. Now, looking into it, there are a lot of reports at the time of these Flemish immigrants being very, very ill. These are people who were living in squalor at the time. I'm starting to become kind of unconvinced um, of, of certain things. One of the things that I'm kind of having a problem with is the only only two accounts of this. I know this is the dark ages. Not a lot of people were able to read or write. So yeah, we would have very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very few accounts of something like this happening. But damn, only two? <laughs> and then when these people grow up, I mean, there's nothing after that? The Flemish immigrant story, really, that makes a lot of sense. That one does. But we don't know for sure. Why don't we have any writing of Ag from Agnes, if that was her name? Why don't we have any mention of her after her growing up? Why don't we hear from her kids? Somebody should have written something, you know what I mean? This is just really weird. The story reappeared in the early modern period. Uh, 1586. And that's when it really blew up. There was a book in 1965. It seems like whenever this thing just kind of dies out, something comes back. <laughs> it died out again by 2006, and then, you know, YouTube got a hold of it. And it's kind of been in the public consciousness ever since. There is nothing definitively for sure to say who these kids were, where they're from. We've heard scientific theories that get changed all the time. Things that we think we know about our planet. Things that we think we know about nature. These things are getting rewritten all the time. But then there's stuff outside of that. The fringe theories. You hear about subterranean entire worlds that the earth doesn't have a core you've heard these stories right <laughs> people report flying over the arctic circle and seeing a giant hole there that's why you're not allowed to fly over the arctic circle that's why you're not allowed to take photos there that's why you know people talking about bizarre subterranean lands where dinosaurs store i'm serious there's <laughs> we'll tackle stories like this eventually but you had to have heard at least a couple of stories about this. People are saying that there's things about the inner earth that we don't understand. Could they have some validity to them? Who knows? Maybe once we dive into more of these stories like this, maybe we could start developing a picture. But the, the green children of Woolpit, 
this is a story that's going to last forever. This is a story that's always going to intrigue. Two accounts, just two, dating back even remotely close <laughs> to that period. I'm trying to find anything, anything on Agnes. See, here's something that I'm wondering, okay? I'm just, uh, like I said, I don't want to speculate and I don't want to come up with shit. But I'm wondering something. Let me look something up here. Give me a second. Okay. Did one thing kind of pop up in your head when I was talking about the green skin? Because something popped up in my head. Arsenic poisoning. See, the story goes that their caretaker, an earl from Norfolk, le left them to die in a forest near the Norfolk-Suffolk border. Another more likely and less depressing culprit is chlorosis, you know, the iron deficiency. But nobody mentioned arsenic poisoning. The Flemish immigrant idea. Whatever the children's origin, the sister eventually became integrated into English society. She was baptized and married. <laughs> Ambassador of Henry II, right? Conflicting reports say she became rather loose and wanton in her conduct. She was a bit of a free spirit. She may have taken the name Agnes Barr. Although with most things in the story of the Green Children, there's simply no definitive evidence anywhere. Pretty bizarre story. St. Martin's Land. Everything is green and it's always twilight. They... And if you really dive into the story, the children said that they followed a herd of cattle into a cave and became disoriented. The sound of bells led them out. When they emerged from the cavern, they did so in Woolpit rather than St. Martin's Land. They described, described this cave as impossible, that the cave wasn't there, that they weren't, you know, they were, uh, how do I say this? When the girl learned to speak English, they asked her, how did you get here? And she described a cave that shouldn't have been there. She was well aware of the land that her and her family owned. And this mysterious cave that should not have been there, the cattle started running into this cave. So they started chasing after the cattle and emerged in wool pit. This one <laughs> is probably going to be up for debate for all time. This one may never be explained, man. What a weird one. But you know something? I'm, uh, I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> Seems like nowadays everything has to be wrapped up all nice and pretty. Everything has to have a neat little bow on the end of it, right? We have to ride into the sunset and the... Credits need to roll, the sound needs to swell. But I like things like this, that where I can tell you straight up, this is an inconclusive, <laughs> if in case you didn't, in case you were wondering. I kind of like these. There are some times that I, I go through these spurts doing the show where I'm like, damn it, can we just get one that we could prove or one that we can debunk? You know, it's been a while. I want to prove one. I want to debunk one. We get a lot of inconclusives. And I knew that going in. 
But it's really, ah, it's a good feeling when you get to debunk one. I mean, really debunk it or prove something. But guilty as charged. Sometimes I really got to learn to just bask in mystery and appreciate it for what it is. Some of these things may never be explained, may never be explained. I guess that's the fun of it. And sometimes I lose track of that. Sometimes I think we lose sight of that. Everything, we want to have a nice, pretty conclusion. Everything all wrapped, all problems solved. Life doesn't work that way. And you know what? I am glad that there are some things <laughs> that don't end up all nice and packaged fine. The legacy of the green children endures, sparking curiosity and debate in equal measure. While modern understanding might incline towards skepticism, the enduring fascination with this tale speaks to its enduring power. The narrative raises questions about the blurred lines between reality and myth, inviting us to grapple with the idea that historical records may contain truths beyond our comprehension and questioning the old saying that every myth, every legend, every fantasy does have a kernel of truth to it. Every story has a little nugget of true in there. And if that's the case, something must have happened in Woolpit. Supernatural or just odd, we don't know. It remains a testament to the complexity of human history. It's a narrative that challenges our notions of reality invites speculation and prompts exploration into the unknown. Whether a creation of folklore, distortion of a genuine event, or something else entirely, the green children continue to capture the imagination. History's mysteries are woven with threads of both belief and skepticism, I think. In our quest <laughs> to decipher the truth, we navigate the intricate terrain of historical narratives that shape our understanding of the world around us. But like I said, sometimes, man, I don't feel like I really bask in the unknown sometimes. I need to do that more often. I need to be glad and not get all butthurt <laughs> when we can't disprove or prove something. Otherwise, I mean, if we could prove and disprove everything, we wouldn't really have a show, would we? I wouldn't get to talk to you guys every week. And I really appreciate you. I really do. What do you think about the green children of Woolpit? Make sure to go on Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com for all things Strange Places related. All the social media links are there, as well as a link to get to our Patreon account where you can get everything from bonus episodes, giveaways, certain tiers, all kinds of awesome stuff. So check it out. Speaking of the patrons, by the way, thank you. Shout out. <laughs> the Coco Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson, Dilligaff. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. D-I-L-L-I-G-A-F. Dilligaff. That's just, that's how I'm going to say it. That, that's, that'd be an awesome band name, wouldn't it? Dilligaff. I just like that. Dilligaff. <laughs> so thanks for putting up with me. Thanks for putting up with my uh, just absolutely destroyed voice. I'm getting over it. I'm starting to feel better. So <laughs> thank you guys for putting up with me this week. I really wanted to record something. This episode 100, it's a big deal, you know. I got to relax and take care of myself. But at the same time, I'm like, damn it. I'm tired of being sick and having life put on hold. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the sponsors. I'll catch you guys later, all right? Now... Are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. 
because every town has a strange place, and maybe one day, we'll visit yours. The Strange Places podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a music label for truly independent artists. They will distribute and share your music on every streaming platform the internet has to offer. And the best part is that you keep all of your royalties. In fact, DistroKid has made history, marking the first time that an artist on the charts made 100% of their earnings. This is the music industry's worst nightmare, giving indie artists complete control over their art. For only 20 bucks a year, you can upload unlimited music, and with the split feature, you can split a percentage of the earnings to your bandmates. If you click the affiliate link in this episode's description, you get 7% off the first year. But did I mention that after that, it's only 20 bucks a freaking year? I've been a musician for a long time. My music is heard all over the world, and yours should be too. Click the link in this episode's description to not only support Strange Places, but put control of your own music back into your hands. No contracts, no hidden clauses, no lovely coin men in their lovely, lovely suits. Thanks to DistroKid for being a sponsor and giving this old dog an audience.